we just sang the, these lyrics, not for a moment will you forsake me. And uh, this isn't in my notes, but, but, I, but I wondered even as we sang that in the first service, do, do we know why? Uh, do we know why God can actually promise that and fulfill his promise? And it's not because he's a good guy, although he is good, but God has made a way for us to be near to him at all times. God has made a way for us to never be forsaken by him, and it's in and through his son, Jesus. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning from the book of Psalms, and we'll be in Psalm chapter 22. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open it up and turn there. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. You can look up here on the screen. The scripture, as always, is up here on the TV beside me and on the screens on the side. There's a Bible in the seat back in front of you if you want to use that Bible. For those of you who are here with us um, for the first time, we've been studying the book of Psalms this summer. The book of Psalms is in the Old Testament. It's 150 chapters, and each chapter is a prayer set to music. It's just a collection of songs. I think it's fascinating, by the way, that the longest book of the Bible by far is just a songbook. Uh, but before we get to today's psalm, that's Psalm chapter 22, I want to briefly talk about a Bible interpretation principle. So when you're reading the Bible, how is it that we go about doing that? So we want to talk about this principle real briefly because no matter what passage of the Scripture that you are seeking to understand, this principle is going to be helpful for you, but it's going to be extremely critical as we seek to understand Psalm 22 this morning. And that biblical interpretation principle is up here on the screen. It's this. The Bible isn't about you. <laughs> the Bible isn't about you. And I think that most of us, if we were asked the question, is the Bible about you? We would say, well, of course not. The Bible is not about me. So we understand this principle in theory, but when it comes to applying that principle, we tend to struggle. For example, Oftentimes, I see people scour and pillage the Bible, the Old Testament in particular, for spiritual platitudes, things that make them feel good, things are maybe easy to apply without seeking to first understand those principles in light of the context or in light of God's grand redemptive plan. So Jeremiah 29, 11 is an example that we've talked about in here before. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And yes, there is a principle in there for the modern believer, but that promise was initially made to a specific nation of Israel during a specific time and a specific place. And we misunderstand the principle and we misunderstand the concept because we believe that the promise is directly for us and we kind of skip over or jettison in any understanding of context. We believe that the story is about me. In other words, we believe that the Bible is about me. But I've got good news. The Bible isn't about you. So if the Bible is not about you, who is the Bible about? Okay, look, here's the thing. Let me ask you something. If a pastor asks you a question... 99 times out of 100, Jesus is a good option, okay? This, it's a pastor here, right? Like I asked my kid, Kaya, how old are you? Jesus, perfect, got it, awesome. 
So if the Bible is not about you, who is the Bible about? Jesus. In order to interpret Scripture correctly, in order to understand the Bible, we must first understand that it's about Jesus. And God eventually invites us into that experience and invites us to experience Jesus and the Jesus story. But Jesus is the hero of the biblical narrative, not us. At the risk of sounding irreverent this morning, Jesus is Batman. And we are the citizens of Gotham who face the consequences of having welcomed the Joker into the city, but we live to see another day because of Jesus' heroism. We are not the hero Jesus is, or Batman's heroism, as it were. (laughs) In fact, in the Bible, Jesus isn't just the hero, he's the plot. He's the intro, he's the body, he's the conclusion, he's the whole story. I remember reading a novel in high school called Animal Farm by George Orwell. Did anybody ever read that book? Yeah. If you don't understand that that book is a commentary and a criticism of communism, then it's just a stupid story about a farm and talking animals. It's dumb. Same goes for the Bible. Unless you understand that the Bible is about Jesus, you're going to think it's boring or irrelevant. And there are talking animals in there, by the way. But maybe worse yet, you're going to misapply or misunderstand everything that the Bible has to say. From creation to God's promises to godly prayer or godly character to prayer, everything. If you don't understand that the Bible is about Jesus. I was listening to a sermon this past week. A guy named Bruxy Cavey. He's a pastor of the Meeting House, a multi-site church based down in Oakville, Ontario. Very, very smart man. Bruxy and I don't agree on everything, but he's a brilliant man. And he made a brilliant comment in his sermon this week. And it was this. It's up here on the screen. He said, everything gets filtered through the Jesus hermeneutic if we are going to understand the Old Testament properly. In the original quote, he says it, but the it is referring to the Old Testament. Everything gets filtered through the Jesus hermeneutic if we are are going to understand the Old Testament properly. And a hermeneutic, in case you didn't know, is an interpretive framework. So here's what Bruxy's saying. He's saying that when it comes to Scripture, Jesus is the only suitable, Jesus is the only appropriate interpretive framework. And without Jesus as our interpretive framework, we are going to misunderstand Scripture. Now, the reason that this principle is especially critical for us this morning is that we've been journeying through the Psalms this summer, and the Psalms give voice to our pain. They give voice to our praise. They give voice to our joy and our loneliness. As we've said multiple times this morning, the Psalms give voice to the deepest parts of who we are. But I want to encourage you, as we look at Psalm 22 this morning, don't let your mind go there, because Psalm 22 isn't about David. Or Absalom. It's not about your pain or my pain or your blessing or my blessing. It's not about your life or my life. Psalm 22 most decidedly is not about you. Psalm 22 is about Jesus. Psalm 22 is about Jesus. And so we have to see Psalm 22 through the Jesus lens. One Bible scholar wrote this. said, Psalm 22 must be expounded word for word, entire and in every respect of Christ only. Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm in which God allows David, the psalmist, to see through the eyes of the suffering Messiah. 
It's as if God puts a virtual reality helmet on David's head. There wasn't an actual helmet involved, you understand, okay? But it's as if he puts a virtual reality helmet on David's head and allows him to see the future and to write a song in the first person from the Messiah's perspective that details the Messiah's suffering. Every verse, every word, even the structure itself from start to finish, Psalm 22 is all about Jesus. Speaking of start to finish, look at the way Psalm 22 starts and ends. Psalm 22 begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the first part of verse 1 of Psalm 22. Church people, does this sound familiar? Yeah. Okay, look how Psalm 22 ends. He has done it. He has done it in verse 31. If you are a highlighter or an underliner in your Bible, will you underline those two phrases or highlight those two phrases? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he has done it in verse 1 and 31 respectively. The reason that those two phrases are important is because when Jesus was on the cross, he spoke only seven times. Mark 27, 46 and Mark 15, 34 tell us that my God, my God, why have you forsaken me was the fourth phrase that Jesus uttered. But John 19, 30 tells us that tetelestai in Greek or it is finished or what, he has done it, was the sixth phrase that Jesus uttered. Both are direct quotations from Psalm 22 from beginning to end. Psalm 22 is all about Jesus. In fact, even though both of those quotations from Psalm 22 are recorded in the Gospels, many Bible scholars suggest that Jesus didn't stop by just sampling verse 1 and 31. Many Bible scholars suggest that Jesus might have even quoted Psalm 22 in its entirety from the cross. Whatever the case may be, Jesus wants us to see and read and understand Psalm 22 with him in mind. In short, Psalm 22 is all about Jesus. So with the Jesus lens, or as Bruxy Cavey would put it, the Jesus hermeneutic, the Jesus interpretive framework firmly in place, I want to do two things this morning with our time remaining. First, I want to point out, because, because it's just amazing to me, to be quite honest, how miraculous and unique and spectacular this prophecy really is. And I want to do that by comparing Psalm 22 with the historical record as it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even with some medicine and history and some other things thrown in there so we understand how miraculous this prophecy really is. The second thing I want to do is conclude with a couple of implications that the psalm has for you and me and our standing before God. So in other words, Once we understand that Psalm 22 is all about Jesus, we'll take the next step and we'll say, okay, now how does God invite me into that Jesus story? So let's talk about Psalm 22. The psalm itself is divided into three parts, so if you want to make some notes here in your Bible, it's a great opportunity to do so. Verses 1 through 18 is part 1, and verses 1 through 18 detail the Messiah's suffering. 
Verses 19 through 21 serve as kind of a transition, and so there's that part two, verses 19 through 21, and verses 22 through 31 detail the implications, the positive implication, the positive consequences of the Messiah's suffering. So we're going to take the psalm part one, part two, part three, uh, respectively. We'll begin with uh, verses one through 18, and now let's marvel at how God gives David a miraculously clear picture of the crucifixion. Watch what David writes. In verses 6 and 7, David writes this. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. Quite literally in the original language in Hebrew, this is their mouth is agape, open wide with mockery. And they wag their heads. In another Old Testament book, the prophet Isaiah writes that the Messiah would be, and I quote, despised and rejected by men, similar language, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We get to the New Testament, and the New Testament describes how the Davidic prophecy of Psalm 22 and the Isaiahic prophecy of Isaiah 53 are fulfilled entirely in Jesus. During his life, Jesus was indeed scorned, despised by the people, rejected by his own nation, and even by his own family. And then during his death, Matthew tells us that the Roman soldiers stripped Jesus and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand of mockery. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on his head. And when they had again mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Matthew 20, Mark 10, and Luke 18 all affirm the same. Jesus was mocked mercilessly, just as Psalm 22 predicted. Perhaps most significantly, Matthew tells us, and now listen close, that when the religious leaders mocked Jesus, they used the exact same language that was recorded in Psalm 22. Unwittingly, unknowingly fulfilling the prophecy of Psalm 22. I I want you to see the verses side by side because it's really fascinating. Look up here on the screen. Psalm 22, verse 8, this is the, the Davidic prophecy, and he writes this. He trusts in the Lord... Let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Again, this is the first person Messiah perspective. This is what he's prophesying people would say to the Messiah out, uh, uh, mockingly now. He doesn't really mean, yes, he trusts in the Lord. He's like, ha, 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 I trust in the Lord. That's my mocking laugh, by the way, okay? And this is what Matthew 27 records that the religious leaders actually said. Look, look, look how similar this is. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. It's the exact same language. I was going to highlight all the similarities in yellow, but then the whole screen was highlighted. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's the exact same language, Psalm 22 and Matthew 27. Though one might argue that these verses may not speak specifically of Jesus, verses 14 and 15, which we'll read here, are really undeniable. Look at what David writes. Again, writing... From the perspective of the suffering Messiah, I am poured out like water, verse 14, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. 
Now, at first glance, if you don't understand the nature of crucifixion and if you don't understand the gospel accounts, this might just look like, oh, that's, that's a bummer. That doesn't sound really good. But let's take each piece of the Davidic prophecy in turn and understand exactly what's da- what David is saying. So again, from a first-person perspective, it's highlighted up here on the screen. David writes, I am poured out like water, and my heart is melted like wax. Uh, crucifixion can take the life of its victim in a number of ways. Modern historians would say that there are about seven different ways that crucifixion can kill you. Google it sometime. It's fascinating read. One of the ways that crucifixion can kill you is hypovolemic shock due to blood loss of over 20% of the total volume of blood that a body has. So in the case of hypovolemic shock, the victim would, would, would experience what is called pericardial effusion, where fluid builds up in a membrane that surrounds the heart. So when John chapter 19, verse 34, tells us that a Roman soldier took his spear and pierced Jesus' side and blood and water flowed, this is not a metaphor. Jesus experienced the symptoms of hypovolemic shock. So when he was pierced to the heart, blood and fluid, water that had built up in that membrane around the heart, both poured out. In other words, his heart had become like melted wax within him. Jesus was quite literally poured out like water. Moreover, the Old Testament prophecy and the New Testament confirm that none of Jesus' bones were broken during the crucifixion. might seem like an odd thing to note in the Scriptures, but it is important because in order to ensure a quicker demise, the crucified victim's legs were often broken, so they were unable to lift themselves up to take another breath, and the result would be asphyxiation. But none of Jesus' bones were broken, so the weight of his body would have become too much for his legs and arms to hold, and his elbows and shoulders would have come out of socket. This was very, very typical for someone who, actually it was inevitable for an individual who was on a cross and legs were not broken. Thus, the psalmist writes, all my bones are out of joint. Quite literally, his shoulders and elbows would have been out of joint. This was an inevitable result of crucifixion when the victim's bones were not broken. Third, the psalmist indicates strength dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd basically is a broken piece of pottery, just like a shard of pottery. And the psalmist indicates that one's t- the, the, the Messiah's tongue is stuck to his jaws. Now think about it. For you, when does your tongue stick to the inside of your mouth? When you're thirsty, Right? When you're thirsty. When we began this morning, I indicated that Psalm 22 begins and ends with Jesus' fourth and sixth statements from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And his sixth statement, he has done it or it is finished. His fifth statement between four and six is simply this. I am thirsty. According to John 19, verse 28. Jesus was exhausted, weak, and broken like a shard of pottery. And dehydration, a symptom of hypovolemic shock, by the way, caused his tongue to literally stick to the inside of his mouth. The similarities of the prophecy in Psalm 22 and the gospel accounts are too numerous for us to go through each one. We just wouldn't have time. Psalm 22:16 says his hands and feet were pierced. 
Psalm 22, 17 says, I can count all my bones, a natural outcome of stripping a thin man naked and stretching him across a cruel cross. Psalm 22, 18 predicts that the soldiers would cast, lot for, cast lots for the Messiah's clothes, a prophecy that both John and Matthew affirm. Finally, the psalmist predicts that Jesus would be laid in the dust of death. The Messiah would be laid in the dust of death, buried in a tomb that belonged to a man named Joseph from Arimathea. The psalmist is about to transition into a victorious voice, but before we get there, I want to make a quick comment. Because I know that some of you struggle with the veracity and inspiration of Scripture. That is to say, you wonder, how can the Scripture be trusted? Is it real? Is this actually God's words to humanity? Is it significant? Does it matter? Is it historically accurate? And does it have relevance for me today. Psalm 22 is one of many reasons why I believe that the scripture can be trusted and is inspired by God. Listen closely here. Listen very, very closely. Most scholars worth their weight in salt, both Christian and non-Christian, both theist and atheist, agree that Psalm 22 was written, listen, a thousand years before Jesus walked the planet. A thousand years He's like, oh, okay, that's that's kind of impressive. Psalm 22 was written 500 years before crucifixion was invented. It was written 1,000 years B.C. by David. Our first record of crucifixion doesn't come until the end of the 6th century B.C. 500 years. So how does the psalmist describe in meticulous detail both the nature and result of a form of capital punishment that would not be invented for another 500 years? How does he describe the experience of the Messiah himself in such detail a thousand years before Jesus would walk the planet? My conclusion is that it's because the author, David, was inspired of God given a vision of the suffering Messiah a thousand years before the Messiah even showed up, 500 years before crucifixion was even invented. Now, that's pretty cool. Now, if we stopped there this morning, Psalm 22 would be the worst psalm we've studied all summer. (laughs) But the story doesn't stop there, does it? Nor does Psalm 22. Psalmist records, look at verse 19. Here's the second part of the psalm. The transition begins here. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Now, here's where our principle that the Bible is not about you comes into play in a major way. Because this is a great prayer for us to pray. We can go to God and say, deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion, and you have rescued me from the horns of wild oxen. Yes, we can pray that prayer. Yes, this is the believer's hope. But That's not what the psalm is talking about here. Who is the psalm about? It's about Jesus. This is Jesus praying, deliver my soul, save my life, rescue me. 
And the father did come to his beloved son's aid. God delivered Jesus from the jaws of death. He rescued Jesus' soul from the sword and saved Jesus from the dog and the lion. Those are just other words for enemies. Because Psalm 22 isn't about you, it's about Jesus. And now that the suffering Messiah is risen indeed on the third day, delivered, saved, and rescued from the dust of death, let's look at the results the positive consequences and implications of that suffering Messiah's death and resurrection on the third day, prophesied a thousand years before he stepped on the planet. David writes this with the Messiah's voice. He says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. Just a side note, this declaration is repeated in Hebrews 2 verse 12. It's quoted in Hebrews 2 verse 12. Further intimates the prophetic and messianic intent of the psalm, by the way. Keep reading. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he, that's God, has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, that's Jesus. He has not hidden his face from him, but God has heard when Jesus cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. That's great news. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Or as Jesus would say, it is finished. How many of you were around 3,000 years ago when Psalm 22 was written? How many of you? Good. Some of you are close. Um, Totally kidding. Love you. I'm kidding. So turn to the people next to you. Turn and say, you and I are the people yet unborn. Tell them, go, do it. There you go. <laughs> I'm watching a couple of people who are with child going, this is actually a person yet unborn. That's, that's amazing. That's quite literal. We are the people yet unborn that Psalm 22 thought of 3,000 years before you would sit at Bayview Glen Church this morning. Though the hero of Scripture is clearly Jesus, we are still those citizens of Gotham that needed a hero to rescue us from the consequences we faced. So let's conclude this way with two. Just two of the countless blessings that we experience because of the truth of Psalm 22, because of Jesus' heroism. And if you're jotting down notes, you can jot this down. Here's the first one. Those of us who are yet unborn, those of us who sit in this place today, we experience oneness with God, relationship with him, because Jesus was forsaken temporarily. We'll say it this way. Jesus' temporary forsakenness is preventative of our eternal forsakenness. Excuse me. Jesus' temporary forsakenness is preventative of our eternal forsakenness. Listen closely. 
When Jesus utters the words of Psalm 22 from the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not insignificant. It's both a a cry and, and a prayer, and it's a very deep theological truth. What Jesus is saying is that he is enduring the forsakenness that you and I deserve. That's what our sin earned us. Forsakenness, separation, a severed relationship with God. But Jesus lived it for a time so we don't have to live it forever. Amen. He was forsaken for you, separated from his heavenly father with whom he existed in perfect relationship from eternity past. And the agony of that relationship and the anguish of that relationship coming apart at the cross when the heavenly father turned his back on his son and poured his wrath out onto a sinless substitute and Jesus experienced that forsakenness, we cannot overstate the agony and anguish of that moment. Here's why. Because if the checkout boy at Longo's severs his relationship with me, I probably wouldn't even notice. But if my wife severs her relationship with me, I would be devastated. Why? We've got 10 plus years of intimacy and history and relationship. That makes it extraordinary to me. It makes it a treasure to me. It makes it precious to me. It means that if that relationship dissolved, I would be devastated. Now amplify the history and intimacy that I have with my spouse, that you have with your spouse, that you may have with friends in your life and your life. Amplify that exponentially and amplify the depth of forsakenness exponentially. This is Jesus who was engaged in an intimate, perfect relationship with his heavenly father from eternity past, experiencing forsakenness on our behalf. This is what he endured, separation from the father, because he loves you, because he loves me so that we wouldn't have to live with it forever. We've been talking all summer in the Psalms about a God who hears, a God who cares, a God who's near to us in our pain. We just sang that truth, not for a moment will you forsake forsake me. This is only true. We have a God who cares and is near to us and listens to us and will never leave us or forsake us. It's only true Because Jesus faced the forsakenness that belonged to us so that we wouldn't have to. We began with this question today. Why can he make good on that promise? This is why. This and only this. That Jesus stood in our place and God will never leave us or forsake us. Because of Jesus, you are never alone. You are never, ever forsaken. Second implication is this. Psalm 22 reminds us that Jesus was, is, and will be God's plan. Jesus was, is, and will be God's plan. Let's use an analogy to kind of understand what's happening here. During the break between services, I walked through the children's ministry, and a a friend of mine's back there. His name is Luke Tott, and... uh, 
He told me that his brother once invited him over for a barbecue. We're about to throw his brother under the bus, by the way, so that'll be fun, won't it? <laughs> Sorry, Nathaniel. Um, he, his brother once invited him over for a barbecue, and Luke said, yeah, that's great, that's awesome. And he said, can you pick up a few things on the way? And he said, yeah, sure. And he goes, I want buns and meat and chips and soda. It's like, well, this is not... <laughs> This is not what I expected. You ever been over to somebody's house before and they, they, they are not prepared for you to be there? Like their house is a mess and like they're, you're supposed to be like staying the night there or something like that and the sheets are filthy and they don't, there's no coffee and all that stuff. Like if you ever want to feel that way, come over to my house this afternoon. That will be what your experience because, you know, you, you don't feel that valued when people aren't prepared for you. When they call and say, we're having a barbecue, you bring the grill. That's not how it works, Right? But this is not how God feels about us. 3,000 years ago, God recorded it in his scripture and prepared for this moment for you. Jesus has always been God's plan. Jesus, God is not a reactive God. The world didn't come off the rails and God go, oh my gosh, I was, I was making a pizza. I, just, I had no idea this was happening. Jesus has always been God's plan. In fact, Acts, the book of Acts tells us this, that Jesus, that suffering that was recorded and prophesied in Psalm 22, Jesus was delivered up. Now listen, and I quote from the book of Acts, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And you might ask me, Luke, how does God's foreknowledge work in sin? Does he allow it? Does he like, I don't know. I don't know. Don't ask me that stuff. Don't email me. Don't ask me. I don't know. Here's what I know, that Jesus was always God's plan. That Jesus always intended, or God always intended to make a way in and through Jesus. He prepared for a very, very long time for you. Your name crossed his mind. Your face flashed uh, before his eyes, before his kind of mental camera. And thought, I love them too much to forsake them. I love him too much. I love her too much to forsake him, to forsake her. So I'm going to send my son well in advance, prophesied thousands of years before it happened. Jesus was, is, and one day when he comes back to rule and reign and to set up his kingdom, he will be God's plan. Always has been. Always will be. We're going to conclude uh, this way with uh, a selection from the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is the stuff I think about um, just during the week. I'm, I'm a real joy to be around because I think about catechisms from the 16th century rather than watching Game of Thrones or something like that. The Heidelberg Catechism is a set of questions and answers that uh, people, children, new believers, and longtime believers would memorize, and it's from, again, from the 16th century to help them understand the nature of God's character, the nature of Christian faith, the nature of Christian doctrine. And this sermon today from Psalm 22 made me think of the first question and answer from the Heidelberg Catechism. And I read it to you, and I pray that you're encouraged and reminded and that you're inspired to give God praise. The question is this, what's your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own. Aren't you glad, by the way? <laughs> Aren't you glad? But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood. 
He has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Men and women of God, 3,000 years ago, in Psalm 22, God gave King David a vision of the Messiah's suffering and inspired him to write it down, included it in his canon so that you and I would know that Jesus was forsaken on our behalf temporarily so that we wouldn't have to endure it eternally. So that you and I can know that Jesus was, is, and always will be God's plan. So we can know for sure, without a doubt, that God will never leave us or forsake us. That he hears, that he cares, that he walks through every moment of your day and week with you. He's always accessible to you. You can always cry out to him. Why? Because in the words of Psalm 22, he has done it. Amen? Let's pray together. Scott, as the team, uh, worship team, comes back up just to lead us in a song of response, we cry out to you, oh God, we need you, oh God, we love you, oh God, we are grateful for the provision that you have made so that we would never be forsaken so that we can trust in your promise and bank on your word. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. We claim that today. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us because Jesus endured it for us. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. With enthusiasm, the people of God said, amen. With the enthusiasm, the people of God said, yeah, that's a little bit better.